Right. Welcome to the very first episode of Creative Conversations, our inaugural podcast here at Omnia Theatre. In this episode, I chat with one of our other hosts, Adam Aubrey, who will be headlining his own series called The Deficit. In this episode, we cover the hopes, dreams, and goals we have for Omnia Theatre, as well as why we're doing what we're doing. Then, we sprinkle it with a few random yet engaging detours to feed that attention deficit you're here to satiate. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed making it. At the end of each episode, we will be featuring local musicians recorded right here in our studio. So if you've been missing summer, stay tuned today to catch Earl Jenkins' performance of his song, California Calling. Perfect. All okay. right, we are live. Good to go. Well, not live, but we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> we can call it live. Live works. It's live for us. Yeah. Live studio session. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ryan Thruffall, tell me where you're from. Well, uh, I'm from Surrey originally. I was born at uh, Surrey Memorial Hospital, although I'm not sure how many people care about that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I lived in Surrey for most of my life, and then Pitt Meadows for a little bit, and then I finished high school up in Cornell in northern BC, which was a very formative time for me. Okay. Um, getting out of the city and into a more small-town setting, it's a very different vibe. Uh, it very much shows you life from a different perspective. Must be a bit of a culture shock, though. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah going from... Uh, and by the way, it's Surrey, British Columbia, not the UK one. Still yeah. very densely populated, though. Um, also not Surrey, Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so what, what, is, what happened in your life that made you think you needed to start a company like Omnia Theatre? I've always... My earliest memories of what I wanted to do with my life involved being able to choose my own projects and a big part of that was not being in agreement with the projects that big companies were pushing forward or that governments were prioritizing it felt like they were prioritizing the wrong things to me even as a child and when you say wrong things you mean um not conducive to moving humanity forward or profit emphasized like um, to be honest with you, as a kid, I'm not sure I had the perspective to actually properly know that. It just, like, something about the direction felt wrong. Mm, fair enough. Fair and enough. Uh, I, as a child growing up with my dad, we watched all ten seasons of Stargate. And I... Amen to that, brother. Absolutely fell in love with Sam Carter, played by Amanda Tapping. And yeah. her ability to just, like open up any piece of technology and mm. understand it and like play with cool alien technology and yeah just being a uh, just being able to invent things yeah. being creative yeah. with technology yeah. and I think that was the major thing that I didn't like about um, the direction that like big companies and governments were taking things in is I didn't feel there was any creativity in the things that they were doing like one of the only really truly creative and frontier pushing organizations in the younger years were uh was nasa and 
as I got older and started engineering school, NASA had started a massive decline. Like, yeah, it's pretty Their funding now. had been slashed. The cool projects that they did were massively reduced. And yeah. I had my one of my first university papers was actually on the downfall of NASA. I chose as a topic really? because I yeah, they are essentially the people that brought us the technology for like cell phones. Yeah. And like uh I mean, all kinds of projects that they've done for space research. A lot of people think of them as just being a space research company. But the research that goes into developing technologies for space are hugely helpful for life on Earth. Like advanced communications, advanced sensors, um, advanced video technology. um, Not the least of which... Like some of the material science that they've done has absolutely propelled us forward. Uh, so material science is in like carbon fiber and things like that. Yeah, like newer lightweight materials that are stronger, higher yeah. tensile strength, um, less brittle kind yeah. of thing. I remember being younger and seeing like an advertisement for that. Uh, was it called Nova Form or something like that? It was like the first memory foam mattresses that oh, were coming out. Yeah, yeah, and they were one of their biggest points was that this is technology developed by NASA. And everyone was like, "Wow, it's a space bed." But yeah, I mean, like, and they are comfortable mattresses. All the purple all. mattresses are like that too. They were like developed for yeah. NASA scientists yeah. or something like that. There's also some pretty cutting edge stuff they're doing up there at the space station regarding like um, being able to regrow heart tissue. And the reason oh, they have to do I've it in the space that. station yeah. is because um, the tissue itself is so delicate when they're first um, applying it that the force of gravity can cause it to come apart as to sit in zero G's while it actually wow. like I guess uh, like intuitively it. that kind of makes sense because like if you're thinking about a baby in the womb, they're suspended yeah. in the fluids, right? Yeah. So they're effectively under zero gravity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty wild concept. Um so with with NASA, do you think that there's gonna be like a uh comeback for them? Are they going to have like a a renaissance age or like a champagne era like the celebrities do? I mean, the prevalence of artificial intelligence tools could definitely help them. Uh, But I think the direction of governments, especially in the last like decade and a half, two decades, has been so geared towards the corporate side of things that like effectively NASA has signed off all of the cool shit that they've done to be um, like contractor work for private companies like SpaceX and yeah Blue Origin uh, and that does apply largely to like rocket ships space travel which is what NASA is very well known for but mm-hmm. it applies to other technologies too like there's all kinds of research and funding grants from NASA where they will help fund the development of these projects but they do a lot less of the work in house yeah, I mean, like, they definitely seem to outsource a lot more now. What, uh, going back to the creativity topic, name some names, people who inspired you to really start diving more into the creative side of your life. And whether you discover, you don't have to say, like, musicians by any means or something like that, but people that helped you to discover that creativity is involved in more than just creating art. I mean, ultimately, for me, that happens. When I, so out of university, I had started a medical device company Mm -hmm. and by the end, I I got fired by my own team. Well, one person on the team orchestrated a pushing me out with a board member 
and didn't that. tell the other two co-founders and they were both choked when they found out she fired me without cause. <laughs> uh, and like a year later, one of them left and yep. like a year after that, another one of them left and then she got fired by the board. So like just a downhill spiral. <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, but we got funding, we got a patent, uh, but the people that were giving us advice, like we kept getting told that no one was going to take us seriously unless we had experience on the team. Mm. And in the medical industry, what experience means is you have an old white dude that's worked with the FDA before. <laughs> and straight up, it's a gentleman's club. Like you need to know the rules. You need to know how to play by them. You need to know what pockets to grease. It's like an old golf and country club with 100%. x-ray machines. And the more I was like working on that project, the more our independent board member would just be like, no, like you can't do creative things with this company. You can't like break the mold. You need to follow the formula. And I was like, that's literally the opposite of why I want to start companies. Like literally I'm in this to do something different. Yeah. I'm in this to try and help people and doing things the way that they've always been done isn't helping people. So do you have any people in particular that might have inspired this move in your life? Uh, I would say it was the, so after they kicked me out of that company, um, I found my way into the film company, uh, film industry. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say it was individual people so much as just being exposed to the vast, uh, collection of unique individuals that the film industry happens to attract. The land of misfits. Yes. Yep. It's very much an For island sure. of misfit toys. And, um, yeah. So like starting as the grunt on a film set as a production assistant or PA, you kind of get to experience a lot of the different departments at a surface level, at least, um, because you have to communicate with a lot of them yeah. on set and offset, whether you're prep or, um, on a shoot crew definitely is a crash course in personal communication yeah when you get into that kind and of role. like because people end up spending so much time being bored uh on set when you <laughs> just because you like rush for two hours to get a setup done and then after that two hours it's uh, all just the camera crew yeah and the director right and the actors and then you're it's a hurry so up and wait everyone scenario. else yeah is just sitting yeah. around doing nothing for a while right and people love to chit chat yeah um so you start talking to people and finding out that uh, transport drivers used to do physio for the Canucks or like own a legal grow up and like huge companies in Germany and also do voice acting. Or, I mean, the flip side of that is you meet a lot of people who've been divorced three times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like you find like camera people who also have like a merchandise store and are into bands kind of thing. Yep. And you find audio engineers who have like a streetwear line that's pretty popular locally. And like you find other people from other departments that have all of these spinoffs and side hustles and so many creative hobbies. Like there's so many musicians in the film industry. And it is a, it, it's a pretty big advantage to find yourself in a line of work too, where you can work amongst other creatives and also not be stuck in a nine to five for the rest of your foreseen life. It's like you, you're going to work the length of this project and then whatever yeah. time off you take is whatever you want, right? As long as you can line up another job after that. I also think that's very much one of the things that helps stifle creativity in like academic settings and in more professional settings is like 
people were not evolved to fit into a nine to five schedule. (laughs) We weren't evolved to fit into cubicles and boxes and like to be stuck in offices all day. We were born outside in the forest and we're supposed to run around in the forest. Yeah, man, we're creatures of nature. (laughs) We evolved to live in this world without clothes. Uh, And that was one of the great things about being in film is that they take you to so many different places and like they'll take you to the middle of the forest. They'll take you to abandoned camping sites. They'll take you to like, uh, at one time we got to race gators, little side-by-side four-by-fours around BC Place because we were using it as a parking lot for one of our shoots. Uh, uh, So like you get to do a ton of cool stuff. I worked on a project where we had some gators uh, and it was like, way up the interior of BC, um, outside of this town called Merritt, about 14 kilometers outside, or it was a half hour drive outside of town. And then where we met was on a logging road and we drove 14 kilometers into the woods and they gave us a whole fleet of these side-by-sides to take on this thing. And it was basically like a whole four days of us like wrapping the location out but we had these side-by-sides and it, it ended up being just bananas because there's like these hardcore quad trails that we were taking in, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just, once all the higher-ups were gone and it was just a locations team and a couple of medical guys and the liaison, we found out that if you buckled the seatbelt in, the speed governor gets removed. And then, oh, oh yeah, yeah, so buckle up. I'm not and sure then, I ever wore a seatbelt in one of those things. Oh, yeah, dude, it was, you go ripping. And it, it was so much fun. Like, that's definitely one of the... The benefits of that industry that you really had no idea would come up. You're like, wait a second, mm-hmm. I get to do this off-road journey for like... Yeah, we almost rolled a, on a wrap out working on Motherland Season 1. I was doing a <laughs> gear tour around the top of a quarry. We were working at a Lafarge quarry. They had done like a big battle shoot scene. They yeah. had like yeah. built a chopper frame. I've seen the one. Uh, and... We were just ripping the gator around the top of the quarry and looking for the last bits of gear and whatnot to wrap out. And me and the other PA that were doing this uh, decided to have a little fun in the gators. And she's kind of a rowdy, like, um, bit of a country bumpkin to some degree. Cool. And she was doing donuts, but she cut it way too hard. And we started to tip. Side, and yep. I just like panic reaction i stuck my foot out and kickstand and just like kicked the ground and pushed us back over and it straightened us up and it worked out well i could have broken my leg and that could have gone very badly but we got lucky and it ended up feeling really cool (laughs) (laughs) that's wild that's so wild um so what about what about this company are you planning to um to see come out first like because i know there's a multifaceted approach that we're taking with this company and, you know, there's different phases. So why don't you explain what we're doing for phase one? Phase one to me is really geared around building community, building yeah. awareness more or less. And like, since this is a company that is about promoting individual creators and small teams of creators that want to make good stuff that like, whether they know their life's purpose and they're working on that or they're working towards discovering their life purpose, but they know that creating content or creating anything is part of that. Um, I want to help those people. I want to encourage those people and promote them. And for me to do that, I think 
one of the only ways is to practice what I preach and to start making content and to put it out there and try and make it as good as I can, try and make it interesting, try yeah. and make it bring value to people. Um, and I want to inspire people. Yeah. Just like a lot of the podcasts that I've listened to that have helped me come up with great ideas, whether for writing my books or great ideas that help me decide to launch this company or the podcast to begin with. And I think that the only like way to really fit in is to be yourself and to do what you love. And personally, for me, as of last February-ish, I feel like I found my life's purpose and this is part of it. And I wholeheartedly believe that when you do what you love, the world will take care of you. So I'm taking the leap of faith and I'm going to start this podcast and I'm going to talk to interesting people and promote musicians and creators and artists. And I hope that the world will like the content that we make. Good answer. I mean, that pretty much describes it. I was hoping you'd get along those lines sort of thing because after how, you, how you've explained um, how this company is going to work for all of us, uh, it sounds complicated but also um, simple at the same time. It's got a good, it has a, what was wow. that? There was a crash just outside. I think that was probably the make-believe, the makeshift <laughs> piano table I made out there. Ricardo, you good out there, dude? You want to just mark it on the on the timestamps on your notes there? That way we know how to cut that audio. Exciting. <laughs> Spooky October. There's yeah. a poltergeist. <laughs> oh, God. Scary. Scary things. Um, so, you know, obviously at some point in the progress of this company, we're going to be coming out with a tool to help independent artists. And it does have an AI element to it, obviously. Yes. Now, We've all, you know, working in the industry we work in, we're very aware of the conflicts we've had thus far with uh, AI being involved in corporations versus creative individuals. So why don't you go ahead and just get into that a little bit for me? Can you tell me about what the main issues have been thus far with corporations and creatives and now how AI has come in and complicated that and what can we do with AI to maybe remedy the situation? Is there a way to flip the script? Because I feel like right now, if you look out on the news pages and you, you see any of the headlines, it's usually something demonizing artificial intelligence. When, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a person of reasonable mind, you understand that AI in and of itself is a tool. It does not have emotions or motivation it's just who's using it, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't you go into that a bit for me? I think some people might not like this analogy, but I think there is an amount of comparability to the argument of, like, guns as tools. Like, guns don't kill people. People, people kill, kill people. people. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's the same for AI tools to a degree, is that, like, these tools aren't evil in and of themselves. Like, the AI tools that are currently in existence or the ones that we're building at Omnia Theater, they don't go out and steal someone's likeness on their own yeah. and reproduce content that is copying someone else's content on their own. And nobody created AI to kill somebody like they did with guns. Like, it's not like, how can I kill a person fast? Let me make an artificial intelligence. It doesn't quite yeah, work like that. Yeah, I mean, that. one day that might happen. Hopefully it doesn't. But, <laughs> um, 
it's very much the person using the tool that is to blame for anything that that tool does that's bad. Yeah. And one of the things that big business and the American corporate model have shown us over the last hundred years, even <laughs> maybe, yep. is that big business can't be trusted. Like the corporate model is specifically designed in a way that makes the individual not important. And if no individual is important, then like who is that company serving? Like who are they providing value to? If they're going to screw over the people that work for them and simultaneously overcharge and dick around their customers, like why should that company get to make hundreds of millions or billions of dollars if it's not for the benefit of mankind right yeah yeah um and i think there's a lot of mistrust with big corporations because of that like people see corporations lay off employees like they mean nothing and Mm -hmm. they don't pay them enough to begin with like they mean nothing they don't give them room to be human in their jobs um because sometimes you need to go to the dentist or pick up your kids or sometimes you get sick. But like a lot of people, even now after COVID and especially since the economy has gone down, like a lot of people are scared to take sick days because they can't afford to survive if they miss a payday. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember what site or page I saw this on, but it was a video comparing the wage to lifestyle or cost of living gap during the Great Depression and compared it to the wage and price, like cost of living gap today. And we're actually further apart now than we were during the Great Depression, which is is, a terrifying thought. It really is. And it's hard to really comprehend that, I guess, or to be able to understand that. I think for us, because now everybody is so isolated and we're like, we're stuck on our phones. We've got, we don't go outside anymore, right? We're the loneliest, Mm -hmm. we're in the loneliest period of humankind. Less and less people are interacting with each other. So how do you have any understanding of what's really going on if you're not out there seeing it? That's really another reason why I'm doing this is like the sense of community that I mentioned earlier is especially in the lower mainland, it feels really hard to build a sense of community to like build good friendships with people. It's hard to meet new people. Well, the people who run these media sources and the places that everyone gets their information from, they've done a really good job at polarizing everyone, right? Yeah, absolutely. A community used to be, in my opinion, still is a place where even if you have varying views on certain political topics, the community is what comes first, right? And like mm-hmm. you respect the others within your community because they're willing to do the same for you. Yeah. And not because of your, like your common alignment to a certain political issue. It should be, how can we get community X to flourish more? And what can we do to help mm-hmm. out with that? Rather than, yeah. well, I'm not going to do that with you because you're on this side of the aisle. You know, it's it's like yeah. I mean, there's there's absolutely way too much division, and I think especially these days, instead of being willing to sit down and have a conversation over like what 
is different or the different points of views people have. A lot of people are very much in this mentality right now where they just they don't have patience for alternative points of view. They don't have the desire to listen to someone who disagrees with them. And that's a very dangerous thing because when you start taking away people's ability to have differing opinions, then you're starting to infringe on free speech, which I know is an incredibly hot topic in a lot of podcasts and like independent media all over the place even the even the mainstream media people are using that as a topic like is your freedom of speech being threatened or how necessary is it what are the boundaries of it um you know it's it's absolutely necessary like yeah there is absolutely no world where someone should go to prison for saying something Saying something does not cause damage to another person. It, like, you can cause traumatic emotional damage to someone, and for that, there should be some co- sort of repercussion in the sense of... I mean, that was effectively what uh, excommunication was, or being ostracized back in the day, right? Yeah. Like, if you acted in a way that was unbecoming of your tribe, of the people that you spent all your time with, they would just shun you. Yeah. And then you would, like... You would either have to change your ways or you would have to leave. And that's kind of the benefits of having freedom of speech is you can then hear the people who are nuts or the ones who are, you know, acting unfavorably towards your common goal or whatever people you decide to spend your time with right now. It's like we've we we have like pre shunned them. There's like a sense where like they already know what they're saying is going to be fought back against and hated on. So they, they find these small corners of the internet where they find these communities and it becomes an echo chamber. And that's where like mm-hmm. extremism breeds, right? That's been, absolutely that's a studied and known fact, right? It's, it's these chat rooms where people just don't go all the time. You know, like there's, you name it, any kind of violent or sociopathic behavior can be fueled and even instructed at times by places that you find on the web, like the dark web has all kinds of areas where you can do unspeakable things and talk about unspeakable things and nobody knows what's going on, you know? Yeah, and those those kinds of platforms can become very dangerous for mobilizing extremists. And oh, absolutely. Causing potentially great harm to people in society. Um which is one of the reasons why these things shouldn't be cast into the shadows. It's one of the reasons why secrecy is so dangerous and malicious, insidious, and cancerous. Yeah. Is, like, the fact that our governments don't tell us literally everything that happens, like, literally every office in the government should have a live stream camera online. 100%. Like, yeah. They are the public servants who are supposed to be serving their people in a country, which means there is absolutely no reason that anything they do in any government, on any, uh, in any country, like none of them should have secrets. They should all be live streamed to their entire country. I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. Like some people might argue that like we don't want certain nations to know about our military secrets and stuff like that. And it's like I can kind of see the logic there somewhat. But at the same time, it's like... I mean, there's... You can't... You have to have a much higher standard for what you actually need to keep 
secret, as they yeah. say. You know? And, uh, like, that's inevitably the loophole that a lot of them have been using lately to yeah. keep more secrets is, like, oh, this is for national defense. This is to keep the country safe. And, like, no, that's bullshit. Yeah. Like... Yeah, knowing that you got paid $12 million by one of these S&P 500 companies has nothing to do with national defense. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's ridiculous. Um, what? So what is your take on what we could do with this, this company, this tool, this community that we're trying to build? I want to give Vancouver something to call their own, something that actually brings us together and holds us together as a community, as a, a singular place that people live together and yep. come together and enjoy life together. Uh, so, Adam, as someone who is starting a podcast around how your ADHD inspires creativity in your life and the things that it brings to you that you are incredibly interested in, let's say hyper-focused on because of the ADHD. <laughs> yeah. What does creativity mean to you? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's being human, really. It's just it's being able to adapt. It's being able to manifest your inner thoughts into something physical, really, or auditory or visual. But it's being right. able to express your innermost self outside externally so i mean it, problem solving and and coming up with solutions isn't is of its self a form of creativity in my opinion like absolutely i think problem solving is the original form of creativity well yeah and and how you solve those problems like you, you there we said it before that like there is more than one way to get to a solution Right. There mm -hmm. is not always just one path. I mean, sometimes maybe so. Like if I'm a heart surgeon and something's got to happen, I'm sure there's other creative solutions to that, but you'd much rather take the most logical path for things like that. Right. But mm -hmm. for a lot of other people and in, in areas or professions or hobbies where the path to that solution might not be as important, how you go about that is entirely unique as well. Right. Um, yeah, I think that creativity is something that we all have within us and it's just something that we channel in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does creativity play into your daily life or your hobbies, for example? Like you have many hobbies as most people with ADHD do, right? You love music. You're great with your hands and building things. I know we love to golf together. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I do. So what hobbies do you have that you consider creative? And on the flip side of that, what hobbies do you have that you consider not creative or perhaps destructive even? Um, Hobbies that I consider creative are definitely almost everything I do. Uh, So... My music, uh, I don't play as much as I used to, but being able to figure out what kind of music is appropriate for what part of my day is a huge part of my life, you know? And, like, even for certain seasons. Gotta my, make the playlist. Yeah, yeah. And, like, my whole taste in music changes throughout the seasons as well. I'm sure there's a lot of people who can relate to this, and if they're listening, oh, you're absolutely. not alone, man. It's it's definitely... No, everyone, everyone. is yeah. like that. The seasons yeah. very much direct our tastes in music. Yeah, and like up until you approached me to come and be a part of this company with you, I hadn't really been into much creativity. I was kind of in a bit of a slump, 
which was ironic because I moved out here to work in film, which is like, you know, arguably, arguably one of the most creative industries. Yeah. And probably the only one where you could make like a decent living on like a massive scale, right? Like there's 80,000 people down here who work in film as a full-time thing. You can't say there's 80,000 people who work in music and can live comfortably. Yeah, there's probably 80,000 musicians, but they're eating ramen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like, you know, and all the power to them. Like, eat that ramen as long as it takes, just fucking, yeah. you just stay true to your, your sound and your music, and hopefully it works out for you. Do what you love. One yeah. day the world will take care of you. Maybe just give us a call. We'll try and help you out. Yeah, we would love to great. have you on the podcast. Help us help you by helping us. <laughs> I mean, a win-win-win is the best, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I got out here, and um, I was excited to start getting back in touch with that side of myself because I, I worked in construction prior to you, uh, mostly in carpentry, uh, which was, you know, there are creative aspects to it for sure, but it was more the the people involved in the industry that I was trying to get away from. There was a lot of unhappy individuals who just, you could see that they lived an entire life refusing to face their demons and let them mm -hmm. just kind of take over. And I, I needed to get away from that. I had a, I've heard something similar from uh, my friend Ben, who was on an episode that will potentially be an audio-only episode. Uh, cool. But he is currently working in construction on like the Oak Ridge Mall project, mm. and he's said much the same thing. Like a lot of the people in that industry, in that line of work, they're just very difficult for him to connect with because they live their life in one very specific way and quite yeah. often that way is they go and work they go home and they drink yep yeah and then you know their whole life is based around work um so yeah I, I i needed to get away from that i was lucky enough to come down here while i was still in construction and help a friend of mine on a little youtube show that he got started um and I built a coffee stand. I acquired a bunch of props for it. I put them in my little shitty. Doing some set deck work. Oh yeah, man! I I I do anything that that I think if I think I can make it, I'm gonna try to make it. I think that's where my wife and I have a commonality. Is she's the same way. That's Just very much a skin. creative talent, right there. Yeah, and so he said he needed a coffee stand, so I built the Twelfth Street Trip, which was just a little quaint coffee stand with a neat. It, it's. You know, I won't go too much into detail about it, but it, it, it was a it was a satisfying part of that whole thing. And once we were done shooting that day, I went to go meet a friend of mine who lives down here and was a lighting tech. And I just was confessing to him. Really, I just needed a good friend to talk to, and I was just telling him that I I did not have the I didn't have the energy to deal with the industry I was in anymore. And I, I was in construction for five years trying to make it work, thinking that at some point uh, I would just wake up and be happy with my job, but I mm -hmm. wasn't. And he took my phone number and sent it to somebody that he knew in locations. I drove home. The next day I went to work. I got in shit from my boss. He told me I had to figure out what my priorities were because he could lay me off. He doesn't have to fire me. And if I don't want to be there, he could lay me off, which was nice. Could get EI for that or whatever. And without even knowing if I had a job down here or not, I just told him, give me the layoff. I I, I can't do this anymore. It's another leap of faith. <laughs> yeah, literally. And uh, the next day I got a phone call, said I had three days to get down here and start working as a production assistant. And uh, 
by it was set. for close up, wasn't it? Yes, that's where we yeah, met. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I went and I sat down with my wife, and I said I got the call. Uh, I called a cousin of mine that I hadn't spoken to in years, who lived in uh, one of the close towns out here by Vancouver called Maple Ridge. Still a bit of a drive, but it was closer than Kamloops, right? An hour to town yeah. is a lot better than three and a half. So I true had that all lined up, and I I told my wife like I. I know it sounds crazy, but I, I want to do this. I want to go down there, and I want to. I want to try. I have a spot lined up, um, and I'd really appreciate it if you could support me. And she was, she's a very logical individual, and at the time you could see that she was pretty scared. But I mean, before that two week shoot for Close Up was over, you had both her and another one of your friends down working on that show. So it's, it's <laughs> what I do, man. I like to, I like to you know, involve my community in whatever I'm doing. And she was just really good about it. She, I could see that she was scared, but she's always been one to support me in my wild journeys of self-discovery or whatever I do. Um, and then I went, started three days later and about, it's been four years now. I'm an assistant director, which is cool, but in a sense, I feel more like I'm a, less creative and more of a manager of creatives. That's true, yeah. Assistant directors are... I mean, there is, I think, creativity in every role in film, besides maybe the accounting team. I've heard some <laughs> of the accountants say that their job is kind of boring. You gotta get creative number, creative uh, with numbers, right? I actually... I would love to have a film accountant on just to, like, get their from brain? their opinion. Yeah, yeah that like, would be cool. How boring is it is there anything creative about their job because or how exciting is it who knows they might yeah. just be like really into numbers right that's that's true maybe they yeah they see numbers dancing on the page for yeah. them yeah uh, yeah so as an assistant director i basically like make sure that everything happening around the set um at least that's the role of the assistant directing team is that everything around the set scheduling the people everything like that is is there and ready to go for when the director needs it for his mm -hmm. cast right and I'm a third or I'm a third AD, so I manage the base camps. We call them circus out here. Um, and you know, it it is cool because I get to interact with the cast, and I do have to come up with solutions on the fly. Um, and you do need to have a certain level of um, personal personality, just being being personable. You have to be willing to absolutely be insightful and and learn how people will act and react to certain things. Um, and just understand that individuals are individuals and you need to, you need to tailor your social behaviors in a way that is more conducive to them being cooperative and also be willing to take the brunt of the fallout when things go mm -hmm. wrong. Because at the end of the day, if something's not at set when it needs to be, or if one of the actors are late, it's due to a lack of communication in the ad team right so especially yeah. starting out training and stuff it was uh it was a steep slope it's a very high pressure department yeah but you know i mean most of my life before i even knew i had adhd i was i didn't know why but a lot of the tasks that i would undertake ended up falling short like i was a, one of those 90 percent and put it down Kind of people could never finish. I definitely anything. struggled with that. For yeah, yeah. So a great portion of my past as well. Yeah, it's. I think it's something more common with our generation than we care to admit. 
But, oh, absolutely. After I got diagnosed with ADHD, within the next year, I had probably close to a dozen friends that were diagnosed with it. Yeah, yeah. So it's... it. I'm trying to word myself delicately here because I don't want to sound like I think I'm better than other people who have the condition because that's not what I'm trying to put Slippery out. Slippery slope suggesting that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I feel that a lot of people I know have gone through that um, and that they probably do have a condition similar or the same one. And um, because of pride or whatever it is, they haven't been willing to go and see they haven't been willing to go and get help or or look inward anymore. And when I was coming up in failure after failure after failure, um, I needed to change my perspective. It was just too much. I, nothing I was doing was working. And so I just mm-hmm. decided that if there. that's just how I'm going to be, then I better get used to it. And I started looking at failure instead as a first attempt in learning, fail, which is... Mm-hmm. Been, I didn't fail. I found 500 ways it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I, I learned lessons from every one of those. And in Everything doing in so, life is a lesson if you let it be. Yeah. And if in doing so, I, I've grown more and more. And one thing I was always good at was relating to people and communicating. Um, you know, I, I could pick anything up and start learning it pretty quickly, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't read worth a hot damn. I, <laughs> any of that stuff was tough for me. Um, so where was I going with this again? Can you repeat your question to me again? It was. I was asking you about creativity in your hobbies and what hobbies you found to be creative and not creative. Right. So I used to have hobbies like playing guitar and like um, <laughs> rapping. <laughs> doing like hip hop stuff with my friends. Incredibly creative hobbies. Yeah, yeah. I used to write uh, poetry and stuff like that. There was a, a lot of things that I used to do that I would have called hobbies. Um, video games, those have always been a, 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 sta- like a staple for me. Um, but when I got down here, all of that went away because I had to focus on my job. I had to climb that ladder. I had to get into the director's guild. That was my number mm-hmm. one concern. I did not want to turn 30 and be lost. You know, I wanted to feel some sense of security. I wanted to be part of a tribe. I wanted to know where I was. And when I got into film, as you were saying before, it's just a bunch of misfits and outcasts and mm-hmm. people who have more artistic direction than anything else. And so... Yeah, very much people that are, like, driven and motivated by their artistic passions. And their, yeah, yeah. Their, and they, you know, if they're not into... Creative things. Yeah, and if they're not into cinematography, if they're not into film it pays well enough that it can fuel the other aspects of their work and that's that's kind of how i saw it like i've always been a huge fan of movies i do love the fact that i work on them science fiction has been huge to me yeah Um, i've honestly i always found that really cool too it was kind of weird to me when i first started working in film to meet people who were there and didn't seem to care about film or television yeah. whatsoever at all. Yeah, and, they're just there to make a couple bucks and yeah. go to the next like go to their next rock show or something. And one of the things that I find is one of the greatest ironies is even the people in film who love film, who are like truly like film and television buffs, when you're working in film, you have almost no time to actually consume film or television. Yeah. So the people making it see the least of it. <laughs> yeah, well that yeah, that's that's 
And it kind of ruins movies for you in a sense too, because now you're thinking about all these other aspects that are happening behind yeah. the camera. And it can it can really it's take like, you. Oh, I wonder how many times it made them. Or how many times I had to repeat that take? Yeah. Or like, oh man, resetting that would be horrible. They yeah. have to clean up so much stuff. <laughs> exactly. Like it's there's there's so many other. Um, variables that you're thinking of rather than just being in the scene it was yeah it's kind of funny but in a, in a sense though you do learn to appreciate other aspects of film and then it, absolutely then you start to notice that a good movie is actually a really good movie mm-hmm. right because there's there's so many variables that you didn't think of before oh yeah you become way more appreciative of the angles and the camera work and yeah. cool shots lighting oh lighting is huge Lighting's crazy, and like it. I mean, all of it really. Like, and the lighting is great, but you also need the grips to bounce the light properly and shape the mm-hmm. light. Shaping light you know, is like, very difficult, as we have learned trying to set up the lighting for our <laughs> studio here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, you know, so now my hobbies really are like just following my curious side really my hobby is just getting involved with anything i'm interested in like i so you I, have made a hobby of developing new hobbies yeah essentially I, I i've realized that i learned through interacting with the things i'm interested in so i try to interact with as much of those things i can you know i'm i'm not i don't have any post secondary education um but i've always been a huge fan of science i'm always reading on the discoveries that we make every week and learning about, you know, what new species have we found, what developments have we had in the medical world, what kind of new, like, cool biohacks have been... Science is one of those things that is an industry that is fueled by creativity, except 95% of the people in academic sciences don't realize that their industry is fueled by creativity. Yeah, because I mean like how do you come up how do you make something that's never existed? You have to create it. Mm-hmm. You have to be creative to and get you there. You have to take two vastly right. different ideas and try yeah. and combine them in new ways. Well, exactly. And like there's there's also the aspect of like one of the things I guess one of my hobbies right now that I'm really stoked on these days is definitely like the biohack side of things like I, i've started doing the ice baths and like mm-hmm. i'm Cuban on like labs podcast is great for that kind of stuff yeah yeah and i'm on i'm on month two of doing these ice baths and like it is honestly wild <laughs> like how much more energy i have and how much deeper i sleep by doing these ice baths it sounds like craziness yeah but... i mean in the last few weeks i've started doing the cold shower thing um yeah like switching it too cold at the end of the shower because as Huberman has explained in one of his podcasts, it's not actually the temperature that matters so much as the temperature change. Yeah, and how so, much, and it, because everyone's body is different, we all react to cold in different ways. So, like, it's not like, like, if somebody can withstand jumping into near-freezing water right away and they're fine, that doesn't mean you're going to be, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's, people have, their nerves act differently. There's a lot of variables involved in that. But, you know, I've, I just watched that podcast, like you were saying, and they had that Dr. Susanna Soberg, I think is her name. And she, something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. She had she just posted the first study of its kind that goes, that was done for as long as it was to see the results of cold exposure. And they were vastly positive. So, one of the greatest things about that study and her research 
uh, in my opinion, from that podcast episode is that she did that research on herself. She exposed herself to deliberate cold exposure as much as her patients. And like she absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, believes in the science behind it and has verified it with her findings and her research and her studies because not only does she feel the difference, but everyone that went through her studies feels the difference and there is data to back it up. Yeah. And, you know, there's something to be said also about intentionally putting yourself into an environment of stress, mm-hmm. you know, and and choosing to be in that and to handle it for as long as you can. It, it's almost similar to when I go in and out of my fighting gym. Like, you know, you nobody wants to fight somebody. Right. Like you don't go like, I mean, I mean, I know there's a few people out there, a percentage of the population who does enjoy physical combat at any given time of day. And, you know, like as long as it's consented on, that's, that's all good, but you shouldn't be out trying to kick everyone's ass all Mm -hmm. the time. Right. I don't like the feeling that I get when physical altercations are about to happen. I did a lot of, um, sports involving combat when I was younger to try and remedy that. Because, like, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't get bullied a lot in high school or elementary school. I was picked on a little bit, but I never really had to defend myself as much as some other people I know have. I've had a couple of scraps and stuff, but I just remember getting that sinking feeling and realizing how dangerous that can be in your adult life when you don't have, like, a parent to call or something and be like, get mm-hmm. me out of here. If you find yourself in this situation um, and you can't take care of yourself or you can't, defend yourself that can be very bad and like even though we live in a civilized society or so we like to think um the civilized po- sometimes <laughs> yeah the, the potential for that sort of conflict is always there mm-hmm. and after a while of like being down here and like you know not being in any sports like that for over 10 years i forgot what it felt like to get hit and I forgot <laughs> what that feeling felt like to get into physical altercations. And oh, I yeah, figured it's been a while since I've been rocked with an impact. Yeah. And, you know, it was weird. I went there and I'd never done full on sparring. Like when you go to an MMA gym, you can go in on their boxing nights and just box, or you can go and just wrestle. But there are some nights where they have a half hour afterwards where it's just full on sparring, grappling, striking, whatever. And mm-hmm. you just you and another partner and like there's people all over the mat just like getting in fist fights with each other i mean it's not like you're not beating the hell out of each other not a bar fist fight yeah yeah (laughs) but it's like you you put the gloves on and you go in and you put yourself in that situation Mm -hmm. you you get into that stressful situation and you learn after every punch how to better handle yourself because like how to control I'll, your breathing, yeah. how to control your mental state. Yeah, like how to deal with that adrenaline. And mm-hmm. like, because the only thing I could think of that really pushed me into that was that I am not alone. I have a wife who I very much care about, who I love you, Cedar, but I, I know you couldn't, you just couldn't. I'd have to, I'd have to help her out. You know, she's, she's not a fighter. She me could. either. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> I, I guess I'm kind of, what I'm kind of trying to say is like, I had this feeling that like, I would rather be a warrior in a garden and a gardener in a war, like never have to use it, but to know how is important. And mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's also something to be said for the physical discipline that it requires. Yeah. And not even the physical discipline, but the mental discipline. And you want to talk about creativity. Like, that is, you got to get real creative when you're actually fighting somebody oh, who yeah, knows how to fight. like chess, but with much more on the line. <laughs> and much faster. <laughs> um, so to pull this back, I want to ask you one more time before we break. Uh, what hobbies do you have or do other people have, perhaps, that you would consider destructive instead of creative or anti-creative almost? If you spend too much time focusing on politics and the majority of your identity is based on what side of that you identify with, um, you're doing no one any favors and you're only hurting yourself. That's, I think that people uh, who doom scroll and just uh, going to be contentious for those people that love politics too. Well, sure, <laughs> and hey, if you like politics, that's that's fine. There's the difference between liking politics and choosing to identify totally by one side of it, right? And having that be your entire life, and to let that control your life. Um, I think that people who spend that much time just scrolling on media sources that you think might not be biased that usually end up being biased at some point. That's the thing is propaganda is literally everywhere these days. Yeah, it's, it's a big symbol of like, you know, that you're just not happy with your own life. And that's unfortunate. You know, I think another destructive hobby, if you want to call it hobby, is binge drinking. I know some people identify entirely by how well they can drink. And it's like... And that's been a very common one you know, for thousands of years. Yeah, and like, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a nice cocktail. I do. And I, I love... I love a cold Corona and lime on a hot day. It is fantastic, right? But never been able to stomach beer myself. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to. I, I just can't. I can't identify myself with an item that I consume, and I think that that's dangerous as well. I feel the more that you choose to identify yourself by the physical hobbies that you interact with, like like materials, uh, the more disservice you're doing to yourself and your personal development. Um, it's great to be into music. It's great to be into all those other things like artistically and stuff. But if your whole life is based around the fact that you're a Gibson dude or that you're a Fender guy, you got to start reaching out, you know, like expand I, your horizons. I, yeah. A little bit. I think, I don't know if there's any necessarily like destructive hobbies aside from like well, like I'm abusing drugs. I'm curious to hear and, your and, opinion on this. Do you, I, clearly, I guess you don't consider video games as a destructive hobby. Then, oh, but yeah, I, I know no, many I do. people I absolutely that do. do. I, yeah. want, I absolutely do. Yeah, okay. I, and you didn't I'm, list them, and they are a hobby of yours. So yeah. I, I was curious. Well, I hadn't quite gotten there yet. I was okay. getting. I was getting there. There's. Um, yeah, I think I think video games are destructive. I actually know a few individuals that I grew up with that are great people who probably haven't left their house in a week. And they just, they live at night and sleep through the day and all they do is sit in front of their monitor and game. And like, I'm just as guilty. I'm not going to say that it's just them because like I have mm -hmm. found myself in many points where I would rather just sit and play. Like, oh yeah. I, I, like I, I definitely have throughout my life, although not really so much since COVID. Like yeah. I, I gamed a whole bunch during COVID and then I haven't really gamed at all since. Yeah. For me, it, it's like... I'm almost lucky that I do game like I do because, like, it's followed me my whole life. My gamer tag that I made when I was 13 on Xbox Live is Game Binge because I just binge video games. I don't I don't casually play throughout my week and stuff. It's like I'll, I'll find a game and, like, I will wake up in the morning, 
turn on my Xbox and that's where I am until I go to bed. <laughs> and I would do that for days and days and days and days and days until I just say I've either beaten the game or I get a handle of myself and I get out and start doing other things with my life. But it is destructive. I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's it's not as destructive as scrolling because you are interacting a little more. There's problem solving happening and yeah. like a lot of games it is training motor functions. Yeah, still. and and there is something to be said about video games empowering creativity too, like Minecraft, Roblox. There's actually an interesting dichotomy here is that like developing and creating video games is incredibly creative. Oh, absolutely. It really but is. But playing them isn't. So, like... Well, I mean, also, like, that depends on the game, right? Like I was saying, like... That's true. There are problem-solving games, puzzle yeah, games, well, Minecraft, games that, man. Like, people make entire, like, electric systems on Minecraft. People build yeah, entire The irony of that being one of the most creative games available is that I loathe Minecraft. I, yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of it myself, either. I, 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 I think of it as an affront to modern graphics <laughs> it really does just spit in the face of everything we've done to advance like gpus these days yeah right? it's like, here's some blocks just stack these blocks you know um yeah. yeah so i i do think video games are a double-edged sword kind of like ai it's it's a tool and it's how you use it right but people so. have a habit comparison. of just diving right into it and and that's just it mm-hmm. and that's sad because as much as you're enjoying your your game you can't tell me that you're not enjoying it that much because it's helping you to escape your own reality because it is a yeah form that of is ultimately it is like especially when you're playing it like a week straight like yeah. you are escaping your real life um i think we're gonna break there all right, so after we're, we've finished with the uh, depressing topic of video games being a creative and destructive hobby, how about you tell me about uh, two different jobs that you've had and what in each of them made you happy and made you unhappy? So one job being the good job and another job being the bad job? Well, I mean, it, it could even be the same job, maybe just different aspects of them that made you happy and unhappy. Um, that could be like a better baseline comparison. Like I did this job, there were these tasks that really sucked. I did this job and these other tasks were fantastic. It's okay. I'll go the latter. I know one that was really fun and one that was just terrible. Um, I'll start with the fun one though, because we got on a pretty dark slope oh, there good. with the we video can go games. up and then bring it back down with yeah, the yeah one. you know <laughs> make them think that we're actually getting happy here yeah. um honestly i had a job for a, a couple years as a wardrobe consultant at moore's selling suits and like you know it's not like a super high paying gig it was commission based so you could do all right if you had enough clients and stuff but um that's kind of where i discovered my love for fashion really i was like okay when I was in there, it's kind of like a mandate that you read every month's issue of GQ and just kind of take an interest in homework. Yeah, take an interest <laughs> in men's fashion. Well, they had that a subscription sense. for the store, so there was always the newest issue of GQ mm. and another men's style magazine. So in the there. bathroom in the back, there was always a stack of GQ <laughs> magazines. Unfortunately, there's no good reading material in the bathroom. Actually, they they kept <laughs> it by the the table in the back of the place where people would sit down for their tuxedo rentals. But um, okay, I learned how to coordinate outfits and like. Through that, I learned a whole different avenue of self-expression, which was really cool. And, like, to be with the people I was working with, like, my dad worked with me there. Uh, he's always been a good salesman, so being able to learn from him was pretty cool. And, um, you know, there were just moments, like, when you make people look good and you see that they feel good because of that, mm-hmm. it 
it is a it's a pretty rewarding experience. Oh, man. It's like ZZ Top said. Yeah, sharp dressed man. Crazy about a sharp yeah. dressed man. Exactly. And so I um, there was a moment there where uh, you know, there's always grad season. Everybody always gets all prepared for grad season. Oh, yeah, I got a pinstripe suit for grad season. Yeah, mine was a, a wingtip Calvin Klein with a, a champagne colored ivy vest and matching bow tie. Uh, mine was wingtip, but it wasn't Calvin Klein. I can't remember what brand it was actually. This is an Italian brand of some sort. I got it at Moore's. Oh, it's probably a uh, Pronto Uomo, right? Potentially, that sounds like it could be right. Actually, yeah, that that was one of the the brands that they rent there for tuxedos. But I didn't rent it; I bought it. Oh yeah, I rented. I wasn't gonna wear a fucking tuxedo again well, for a while, I'm, right? Isn't actually a tuxedo. It's like a pinstripe suit suit. Oh, you got a suit. Okay, so there's there's the difference there. It's like a lot of people also don't understand this that there's a the defining difference between tuxedos and suits is satin. So with oh. a, with a tuxedo. You're going to have a satin lapel and satin covered buttons, the buttons on your cuffs and on your jacket. That's what makes a tuxedo? <laughs> yeah. yeah, essentially. Um, I mean, it could be debatable as far as like the the full ensemble of the outfit goes, but you are going to have mm-hmm. satin on your lapel and on the buttons. And usually there's satin accents to the pants as well, just to have that little bit of shine, right? Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that is the the main differentiation between the two. Not a lot of people do know that unless they actually work in something involving fashion and stuff, That makes sense. Read Um, a bunch of GQ. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So when they were telling me I could buy a suit or wear a tux, I was like, I want a tuxedo. I don't want a suit. I want a a tuxedo. And I'm not going to pay $800 for a tux because you only wear it once. But for this sort of occasion, I felt like I needed a tuxedo. My graduation aside, though, not important. The, The thing that I found was... Uh, the most rewarding moment I had in that store, um, we had a a young man come in who it was his grad year, and uh, he was somewhere on the spectrum, um, the autism spectrum, and he was very nonverbal, couldn't not a lot of verbal communication, right? right? Um, very shy, but really excited. You could you could tell that he was like excited to get some color on, um, and he had one request. He brought in a pair of limited edition Nike Air sneakers that were um, the video game Saints Row. Do you remember Saints Row? Of course. So the theme for the Saints is royal purple, right? Oh, yeah, that explains. So my most prominent memories of Saints Row are my friend running around beating people with a purple dildo. Yeah, that's one of the things that you could do in that game. (laughs) I think that was in Saints Row 2, though. But anyhow, the, the whole point of the story was like he he came in to get his suit done or get his tuxedo rented and it was my job to they said like as long as we have a color as close as we can to this royal purple um we trust you so i put together an outfit and once i put it all together i ordered it in it finally came in and like i hadn't heard the kid say a single word the entire time right and we put him into the princess mirror that's the mirror that you stand in when they're all putting the parts of the suit on you and you have the three mirrors right there, right? So you can see yourself from all angles. Makes Um, sense. Yeah. And uh, what we do is we have them face us first away from the mirror while we get them prepped and make sure everything's in place. We got his nice signature shoes on and I ordered this amazing, it was an Ivy pattern on the vest and it was a vibrant Royal purple. It oh, was I love just it. beautiful. I mean, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of purple. Yeah. yeah. You should see my <laughs> wife. Same thing. Very purple. Um, and this big 
beautiful royal purple bow tie with a matching pattern on it. And he turned around and the only word I ever heard this kid say was, wow. And it was like, and his mom was I mean, like, that's a compliment right there. It was amazing. <laughs> his mom teared up and like, you know, for a lot of people, graduation from high school, that's a big moment for the parents, especially too, right? Cause they're, mm-hmm kids growing up you know it's they're gonna yeah. go off to college or university birds or, leaving the nest yeah and maybe maybe even not either of those but what they know for sure is it's not their little boy anymore mm-hmm. right he's at the step where he's gonna become a man and uh yeah there's a lot of gratitude there and i felt really good because it just feels good to make people feel good you know absolutely and, it that's one of the most rewarding things on the planet yeah and so i i just from that point forward i, I just really started to fall in love with um, style, I guess. And I mean, like I, you said, it's an excellent method of self-expression. Yeah. And like, I know viewers probably can't tell right now because I'm wearing these weird ass jeans and a black sweater, but like I, I never usually end up wearing, you couldn't fit me into any niche of fashion. Monday, I'll wear all black. By Friday, I'm wearing. Last summer, he showed up to our first softball game wearing a tie dye tank and shorts combo. Yep. Because <laughs> it was a it was a beer league, and I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna be a beer league guy." But like, and you should have also- seen what I wore uh, just last Friday. Actually, I went out to a friend's birthday dinner, and uh, I managed to snag this really cool navy blue tuxedo jacket with micro point black etched in through it you can see these little bits of black through the the sheen of the blue okay and uh i just went like punk rock look with it almost like i i had a tuxedo coat on but underneath i had a like a black deep cut v-neck and these like biker pants that i've got with like zippers on the thigh and stuff and i wore my black converse like russell brand get him to the greek yeah yeah exactly <laughs> like that's that's literally what i was thinking i rolled the sleeves up on the on the tuxedo coat i put a nice uh rose gold watch on threw on some jewelry and like I mean, yeah, even with your wristbands there, you, you yeah. very much feel, get them to the Greek rock style. Yeah, and like I went to my rock friend Eli's par- birthday party, which is like, <laughs> he is, they're, they're all very gay. Like, and they, they, they love when people come dressed up nicely. And for the first time in this group of friends, which I do hang out with frequently, I was, I felt like I was the best dressed one there. And like, it was pretty cool. Um they're all now very... would they say that you were the best rest one there? Well, that's the only reason I felt it. They kept on coming up to me and telling me exactly okay, that. So I was right, pretty right. impressed. I was like, I guess I got to wear this one again. But it that's just it. It's like, however you feel. Do you want to look a certain way? Like, there's no... It helps you to escape the idea that you have to fit in to something. Mm-hmm. You know? There's something that I did uh, in university when I felt terrible about an exam that I hadn't studied for well enough. I would show up to the exam wearing a suit. Yeah, there you go. And uh, people would always like snicker at me or laugh. My friend Ian, one time I walked in uh, to our exam, I went, and I was like five minutes late too. He was already like getting ready to start, and I walked into the suit, and Ian just looked up and he's like, "You dapper motherfucker, sit yeah. down." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, right? You, you, it's one of life's. It's the oldest life hack in the book. You dress how you want to feel or you dress as who you want to be and like it helps you to kind of come into that. It's Um, also very important to be comfortable in what you wear because one of the things that it taught me about showing up in that suit, I mean, I felt good doing it most of the time, right? Um, But 
by the time I had been displaced from the company that I started out of university, <laughs> yep. uh, they canned my ass. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like in that time period, while I was in university and towards the end of that, especially trying to build a medical device company, I was always trying to be like business formal or like somewhere between business casual and business formal, right? Like button downs and nice pants and suits. And one of my co-founders, Nell, she's super into street style. And she would always look at me and say, Ryan, you're too dressed up. You're too fancy. You look too formal. And like every time we'd be at, like if we go to an event here that was like promoting entrepreneurship or something, they're usually thrown by like law firms and like professional companies and whatnot. And most people tend to be like business casual to formal wear sort of deal. Mm -hmm. But when we got to China and even then after that San Francisco, um, the style had very much changed for the people at the events. Like any startup event that we were at in China, people weren't like dressed up so much anymore, at least not the founders. Like Mm -hmm. maybe sometimes if it was a formal presentation, a formal pitch in front of like a group of investors, uh, people would dress up a little bit nicer. But for the most part, like founders dress in jeans and a t-shirt or sweats and a t-shirt right because they're spending yeah it's the, 10 the plus whole, like, hours a day billionaire bullshit thing like mark zuckerberg wearing a zip-up hoodie in a regular tank i mean or part of it is there's there's two arguments for this one of them is comfort if you're spending 15 hours a day at a computer or whatever working away you want to wear comfy clothes it's true uh and the other side of that argument is that uh there's this thing called um Uh, decision fatigue, which is like throughout the day, you only have the mental capacity to make so many good decisions kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So like dressing just is not one of the ones. Yeah, a lot of like the big uppity tech founders, like they take that to the extreme and they have like a closet full of all the exact same clothes because they take the decision away from having to dress. It's it's no longer something that weighs on your mind because you just reach in and you grab something. Well, there's di- there's a difference between dressing a certain way because you have to versus when you how you want to, right? Yeah, and that's like, where the self self expression part comes in. Yeah, exactly. In. Like you get into business and you have to wear a suit. There's a big difference between saying I feel like wearing a suit and I guess I got to wear this suit. Mm-hmm. Like if if it was left up to me, I wouldn't be wearing a suit every single day, but I'd sure as hell be incorporating a lot more elements of that lane of fashion into like my day to day dress, right? Um, but yeah, that was definitely one of the most rewarding jobs I ever had. And Jackie, if you ever see this, like shouts out, thanks a lot. It was a great time. I know I could have done better, but you you taught me really well too. Um, we can always do better. Yeah, she was my manager at the store, and she's actually was my stepmom for a short while as well. Yeah. A short while. Yep. Sounds like a juicy story there. <laughs> no, it, it, it's juicy, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a family affair for a while. That's actually where I met my wife, too, is at Moore's. And my little brother worked there after I left. So, it was, yeah, it was a whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. You sure your family wasn't franchising? <laughs> we should have. Would have been smart. <laughs> um, yeah. Worst job ever. I went up north to the oil fields for a little while. Sorry, the oil sands. I was not a derrick hand or anything. I was a construction laborer. 
and we got hired to um, dig some trenches. Um, so there's this big oil company called CNRL, um, and they were the way it works up north is they have these camps, which are basically like the places where you live while you're there are like these big, uh, like mobile trailer units, essentially. Like you ever see the Northern trailer units that they use at like construction sites and oh, stuff? Oh yeah. They, some places use them in, uh, or at least farm studios uses them yeah, for yeah, film yeah. offices. Like it's, they're just like little modular home yeah. things, right? So it's like a school cubicle almost. Yeah. Yeah. So those were, it was like those stacked three high and like 12 long. Like that was kind of like you're living here, but they were put on top of these posts because mm, depending yeah. on what the weather was like, yeah, the, the mud ones could at farm rise. studios are like that too. Yeah, and so, um, they put these units on on the posts. Had to crane every one of them on and secure them, and then after they had them all on, they're like, "Oh, we forgot to dig trenches for the sewer lines." <laughs> and who did they hire to come up there? The company I was working for. I made it two weeks. Then I went home. I could not, I got, I got canned straight up. Like I got there and I was digging. It was, the thing is to, the soil up there is not soil as much as it's boulders with some soil between them. Like Mm. you put your shovel in the ground and you might. It stops. Yeah. And you step on it. Yeah. It stops. And (laughs) even, even that on top of it, on top of that, like we only had about this much clearance, like about three and a half, four feet of clearance from ground to head. So you couldn't get your shovel upright. So we had to cut the handles of our shovels off so we'd get them upright, which means you have less leverage, less shovel to work with. And it took us like a week just to dig 60 feet of trench. And we had to Why didn't they get a mini excavator in? Couldn't fit it. There's even a thing called a ditch witch, which is a machine that will just go and dig these huge ditches, but couldn't fit it underneath. Hitch witch, what a name. <laughs> yeah, I know. So we were stuck with these fucking little hammer drills and our shovels. And like, you'd spend an entire shift, like 10 to 12 hours in this trench, hammering this little drill on this giant boulder, chipping it away bit by bit. And it was mosquito season. And I don't know if you've ever seen the mosquitoes in like the northern border of Alberta. No. It was, they're the size of a toonie. And like, or, or sorry for American people, there's the size of a poker chip. They, okay. they are large. And like the trenches, there's already one company that had tried and quit and it had rained while we were gone. So the, there was all this stagnant water in there and it was underneath a bunch of units. So it was nice and cool and dark. Uh, so exactly prime brooding habitat. They, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had these big diesel fans running at the end of each one of our trenches blowing so that the mosquitoes couldn't actually fly around us. Because it didn't matter how much bug spray or deet you were putting yourself putting on yourself. It was not, they weren't moving. Well, yeah, they when were. they're that big, you need half the can to kill them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by that point, it's going to kill you, right? So <laughs> we, it was, it's kind of, it was like something out of a movie, man. We're just digging. And then you hear the generator quit. The diesel generator quit. All and of a sudden, you you're look, eaten alive by mosquitoes. Yeah, you look down the trench, like down the line towards the light, right? And the fan is stops. And then this cloud forms and starts coming towards you. Oh, my you. God. And you just like <laughs> drop the shovel, book it out of there. And you got to crawl out of there too, right? You're like on all fours, like trying to get out. Yeah. Like something out of a horror movie. It really was. And um, I guess before I went up there, I had contracted mono from my girlfriend at the time. So- 
I ended up like getting when really sick. When it rains, sick. it pours. Oh yeah, I ended up getting really <laughs> sick. I fell asleep in my ditch. My boss caught me sleeping in the ditch, sent me home. And, so you uh, were the ditch witch. Oh yeah. yeah, I was the ditch bitch. It was, like, it was, it was bad, and uh, yeah, I never looked back. I got, I came home with tonsils the size of golf balls, and I quit the company right there. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. It, you couldn't pay me any amount of money to go to a fiery hellscape like what that was. It was just mud, dirt, steel, and fire everywhere. It was terrible. And Sounds like hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. It was I'm going to make fun. an ob- observational jump here and say that there was an amount of creativity in your job at Moore's with fashion and there was none in a job where you had to dig a hole in a straight line. Yeah, well, I mean, you had to get creative to get around those fucking boulders, that's for sure. Um, that's it was, it was, you had to true. find solutions to make you have to accomplish this giant task with the what Most solutions did you come up with? Hammer drills. Just hammer drills. Couldn't fit anything else in there. We had, we could get an industrial sized jackhammer in there, but you try holding a jackhammer at a forty five degree angle. <laughs> it's not gonna work, you know. It just you know it, it wasn't. You just got to get more jacked. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I I should have been just, just bigger. Be Dwayne Johnson. He wouldn't. Dwayne Johnson couldn't wouldn't fit, fit in the trenches. <laughs> yeah. it, it wouldn't happen. You needed little dwarven people like me, like. <laughs> Sturdy, small. I guess that's why dwarves are miners. Exactly. Right? (laughs) I was like, I'm doing the work of my people right now. The whole thing. My Uncle Gimli would be so proud of me. No, it was... um, Uncle Gimli? Yeah, right? Uh, Are you set to inherit a mine? (laughs) Right, I know. No, it it was... Yeah, it was a terrible job. And no no hate on people who work out in the oil fields. If anything, I gained a massive amount of respect. I mean, it's hard work. I know a few people that have gone out there and, like, none of them have lasted very long. They do it to make some money, but even a lot of them that have gone out there, they say that the money isn't as good as people say because the cost of living out there can be high. I have a a foster sibling, Um, like, kids that were close friends of my family's that when there was a falling out happening... With their family in Alberta, they were sent out to us to live with us. One of them was, we call him Big Ben, because I already have a little brother, Ben. So there's Big Ben. He's my older brother. Oh, age. man, there's so many Bens. I got, one of my best friends' name is Ben, too. Yeah, Big Ben was only there for a little bit, because he got out to the oil rigs fast. But he was on the rigs for three and a half straight years without leaving. And came out of that like with a six-figure income. But a whole different person. Like he was, it's like he'd been to jail or something. You know, he's out and he doesn't understand PTSD how the real world works. Yeah. The 40 every night when he gets home. Yeah, it was wild. Like he was actually pretty good about it. It's crazy. Like he was very healthy. It was strange. Like he kept himself off the, the sauce pretty early on. Um, you know, like a lot That's of good because I've heard a lot of people on the oil rigs just end up drinking all their money away. Let alone not just drinking, or, man. Yeah, you got, you got drill away. hands doing Hitting cocaine the off the machines. You yeah, know? like it's it's brutal. Well, that's how you get the energy to hold the jackhammer at a forty five degree angle. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, they don't even need to touch jackhammers. They got to deal with these twelve foot long giant steel pipes and throw a giant chain around them all day long. It is like hard fucking work. Those men, those are like. <laughs> Respect I mean, them. That's but... like basically what Ghost Rider does, and he is literally from hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like you yeah, you see these guys throwing these chains around like the Ghost Rider, you know they're legit. <laughs> you know, like despite the rest of their life choices, there's if there's one thing every one of those men have, it is a like ridiculously solid work ethic. 
and are willing to put themselves through. ridiculously solid arms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shoulders the size of boulders, bro. Boulder shoulders. Yeah, no, so I'd say worst job I've ever done was that. I mean, aside from that vinyl plant that I was talking about before Mm -hmm. or veneer or whatever I'm talking. Which was very mind-numbing. It was mind-numbing, but it was not the worst, you know? I still got to go home at the end of the night when I was there with the rigging thing or with the... The oil sands, it was just a whole other world. And I know a lot of my friends, if you guys see this, I know a lot of you guys have worked on the oil sands. You're better than me, okay? <laughs> You're just better than me. So be happy with that. But that's my opinion. <laughs> I'm going to get shit for that when I go home. They're going to love it. But yeah, no, those are- Hey, as two. long as they watch this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the hope, right? No, those are, yeah, those were the two, two hardest ones for me. Or the one hardest one and the one best one. Morris was amazing. It was great. Yeah. Sounds like it could be a lot of fun. I've never worked in fashion. Honestly, my fashion sense in high school was so bad, I needed a female friend to buy clothes for me. At least you're willing to admit it. Because a <laughs> lot of guys are just like, they're not willing to ask for advice. They're just like, hey, this That's, is something yeah. I saw Paul Walker wearing in Fast and the Furious, so I'm going to check this out or mm, things like that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or... uh there's a lot of people, especially in Quinnell, where I finished high school, because I was only up there for grade 11 and 12. But the classic was like the country bumpkin, like the Smallville Clark Kent look, where they're wearing a t-shirt, solid color, and then they got the plaid shirt on top, not mm-hmm. like buttoned down, but open. And like, there's a lot of people that rock that look in Quinnell. Yeah. What else you got for me? You got any questions about... I don't know. What, what do you, what else you Fishing got? for questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I like answering questions. Why do, um, yeah. Like, I'm just, my mind has asked so many questions today that I, I don't know That's if I fair. can. That's fair. I don't yeah. know if I can return yeah. the favor right you've, now. I'm you've not done lie. some, some recording already besides our earlier episode. Yeah. Um, ask me about the company yeah. and stuff, you know, like, we're, you know, well, I'm involved so, in this. I'm I'm very curious what the number one thing you would like to get out of Omnia Theater is. Like, what does Adam's enjoyment and personal growth look like involved with this company? To get back in touch with my artistic side and surround myself with people who share the same passions. I'm super excited to finally be around that. I've always wanted to be in a band. I was in a couple in high school. They didn't work out. Uh, I might not be in one doing this, but at least I feel like I'm around the people uh, that I can collaborate with and, and create sound art mm-hmm. with. Like, I, I don't get me wrong, I, I love film. I like all facets of art, but uh, what sound can do is amazing to me. And I guess at the end of it all, I'd like to see some people on stages and know that I helped them get there. You know, I would really like to... See That's something an awesome goal. I yeah. love that. Uh, well, it's 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 kind of like what I was saying when I was working at that at Moore's the suit shop is like I found that my passion really is just feeling good by helping people feel good. And what makes you feel better than to actually get up there and achieve something, you know? Yeah, there's something that always rolls around in my head um especially when I've taken a trip to Wonderland. <laughs> yeah. Uh is if your actions can help others, they should. Like, well, if, yeah, if that's the actions of one person can do good for other people. There's no reason for them not to. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Like, I think uh, to elaborate on that principle, I, I learned a very simple rule early on in my life, and that's if somebody asks you for help, you help them. 
especially since so few people are actually capable of asking for help. Like so many yeah. people it have- It takes a lot to ask for help, yeah. let alone to accept it, right? Yeah. If someone is asking you for help, it means that they're at a point where they can't do it themselves. And as a human being, you should be compassionate enough to at least lend a hand. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't, I feel like that's one of the things we're really missing in this world these days. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by a lot of very generous, compassionate people. I feel that I've, I feel like I've had the same yeah, fortunate. Yeah. And like, you know, if anything that we should all hope to get out of this project, I think it is to be able to spread that more. To let people yeah. know. And well, like, I mean, that brings us back to the community aspect, yeah. right? Like, that's one of the things that, like, whether you are religious or not, if, I mean, you can't deny one of the original things that church did was give a sense of community. community. And yeah. churches, like, people in churches help each other out. It's, like, similar to yeah. families. Yeah. Um, like, when you know people and have a personal connection with them, you you want to help them more. You want to offer your assistance when you can and you want other people to ask you for help. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful thing, man. It really is. Like, I I feel very lucky. You know, like, I, I really do. Like, I haven't been able to find many career paths that suit me entirely. Um, but the people I've been around, the lessons I've learned and the, the shit I've gotten away with to learn the lessons from, I've counted my blessings more than one time. And I think like, that's a very important thing to touch on is, and like one of the largest things that so many parents get wrong is they try to force. Yeah. So like I would, what I want to get out of this company is just to, to feel some meaning, to feel like I've had a, an actual effect on people's lives, um, whether that be a few or a hundred or a thousand, it doesn't matter. I just want to know that, um, Instead of just working for a corporate machine, I am working to help people uh, express themselves and and to make their own living off of the things that they make yeah. and their self-expression. Like well, that's and, one yeah. of the main things for me is like I'm tired of huge companies not treating people right and not treating them like people. Whereas, like most people that work for a large company are actually more stressed and work harder for that company than they would if they worked for themselves. And harder is a little bit of a relative term because self-employed people tend to work very hard, but they're working at something that they love, which yeah. makes it not work. Yeah. People always wonder why the guy who owns his own construction company is still at work after everyone's gone home. Because that's the decision he made. He wanted to do that for his life kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or a lot of times not, but you know, how about, how long, not how long, you mentioned that you're tired of these huge companies, like not treating people like people and stuff like that. So imagine this gets that big. What's going to be your safeguard to make sure you're, we're not doing the same thing? That's a great question. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Right? Cause especially like, as someone who like for all intents and purposes has nothing like I, I don't have a platform already. I don't have a fortune. Like there mm -hmm. isn't a massive amount of funding behind this. So it's very much a underdog kind of story. And 
when you're starting as someone with nothing, like you kind of have to play the game and say that like you're going to do these big things and you're going to like change the world and like be the greatest kind of thing, which um, I don't really necessarily believe in being the greatest. I believe in being the greatest you that you can be. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's impossible to be the greatest at anything. There's always going to be someone that comes along that's better than you. Uh, but being the greatest you that you can be makes you the greatest at a lot of things in a way that is not comparable to other people, um, but in a way that is comparable to a life of happiness. Like yeah. you, when you improve your skills and you do the things that you want to do, you become the best version of you. Yeah. And the best version of people in my experience and in my education of history at least as limited as it might be, is like the more experienced and capable and knowledgeable and all of these things you are, the more compassionate you are and the more you care about life and others, um, which isn't necessarily always the case. I'm sure there's definitely some people that are like- There's exceptions to every rule, yeah, right? There's, there's always absolutely. an exception to the rule. But- like one of the things that I would really like to do is like I have a frugal personality to start with, right? And I don't need a lot. I am very happy living a modest life. I don't need tons of gadgets and tools. At one point in my life, I thought I did. I love gadgets. Um, I mean, my weak point. they are fun, but I don't care about having something if it's not serving an immediate purpose in my life. Yeah. And I'm not going to go out and buy a bunch of stuff that doesn't serve a purpose, right? Like, so if I don't need all of that extra income, what difference does it make to me if I'm giving, like, if I have profit sharing agreements with like every artist that ever comes through Omnia Theater that we ever work with? Yeah. Um, yeah. And like, in a way that will hinder the growth of the company because mm. like obviously less revenue is coming in. Um, well, not less, less revenue. There's less profits being kept, which is exactly what the big companies need to like. Figure out. Yeah. The big companies, like why does Apple need to have $360 billion cash? Yeah. Your CFO doesn't need a $15 million bonus. And Bezos, no CEO you know? should be making 25 to 50 times what their regular employees make. Like that's just... It doesn't make any sense. It's disgusting. And the CEO doesn't even do the hardest job at the company. Yeah. I can understand maybe just because of the status, as you would say, air quotes, of, of their position, them having a bit of a, a I mean, pay bump over the rest. that is inevitably but, why they do. But yeah, no. It I mean, should not be as vast as it is. At Omnia is Theater, it, as long yeah. as I am paying salaries, I will always have one of the lowest salaries at the company because I don't need... like. I think too. I if profits are down, they're the first people that should take be taking a cut. Oh, in their absolutely! Salary, you know, absolutely, especially if they've been yeah. making more than everyone else. Yeah, like if you got millions of dollars in the bank, sorry, but you can take a break. You know, yeah, like you're gonna you've still you're gonna, got stock options yeah. worth millions of dollars. We're gonna give you the company average hourly wage for a while, mm -hmm. while we use whatever Minimum money wage. <laughs> yeah, while we <laughs> use whatever money would go to your bonuses to like keep food on the table for our employees. Yeah, it's not that heartless. It, you know, it makes a lot more sense to do it that way. Like mm -hmm. people, it, yeah, it, it is that, that whole system of it. Also, I think it's funny though, how they just, <laughs> they're like, you know, what did you do today? Well, I sat at a table with seven other rich white people and I talked about 
how we're going to make more money. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm so exhausted. Yeah. Uh-huh. So and what is it, what do the people in your company do? Well, you know, we own a metal fabrication plant. <laughs> but I work way harder than they do. Yeah, you know, like never mind yeah. the welders and people hoisting these giant fucking, you know, engine blocks or whatever yeah. out of there. And so many people, like especially in Silicon Valley and like people with money that finance companies, projects like venture capital or private equity, whatnot, they have the absolute incorrect idea of what made Steve Jobs Steve Jobs or what makes Elon Musk Elon Musk. I mean, some of them might understand Elon Musk a little bit better because he's a little more understandable in some ways than Steve Jobs was. Well, maybe but, 2012 Elon Musk. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like so many VCs and wealthy people, investors and whatnot, or like board of director type people exactly they saw steve jobs being a hard asshole and they think that that is what made steve jobs great what made steve jobs great is that he was always on the floor with his designer working on a fucking product that people were gonna want to use yep, yep. and he didn't give a damn about the bottom line he didn't care about minimizing expenses and maximizing profits he cared about making a good product that people liked because that's yeah. what matters yeah there's um there's a lot to be said about that too i was watching some of that huberman podcast a while ago and he was talking to a guy who was um the topic was uh successful personality traits or something like that and he was stating okay. about how there's there's these um, overtly narcissistic actions that come from billionaires and industry leaders. And it's not necessarily because they are entirely narcissistic. It's that the way that they view what they're doing at the scale that it's being done at, what they do does not matter. It's like, why do you care if I'm an asshole if I'm giving the world internet? It's an interesting you argument. Know, it's yeah. like this whole kind of like, it shouldn't matter what I'm doing as a person. Look at what I've created is doing. Mm-hmm. But it still matters, you know, because you a person of that kind of power has influence, right? And Absolutely. You know, if everybody just saw like Jeff Bezos being completely open about all the hookers he takes home or whatever, then next thing you know, there's like a surge in the sex working industry, which don't get me wrong, I'm, sex workers work. I'm all for that. But you know what I mean? It's like it can it, they can cause waves with a single tweet. We've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like you got to keep yourself in check, especially when you have that much influence. <laughs> Just I, I can't imagine living in a life like that. You like, you know, like last weekend I made more than the entire like subcontinent of New Guinea or whatever. Like it's just, it makes no sense. Yeah. It's just uh, crazy. Especially like with how much of his wealth is attached to Tesla's share price, Elon Musk's <laughs> like his net worth swings by like $50 billion on a like almost monthly basis. <laughs> billion dollars. That's wild. You know, like, and we won't even make close to a billion dollars in like the average span of a lifetime. We'll make close, not even close to a hundred million. The average person, it's like no, I, not even close to a hundred million. Yeah. Most people are lucky if they make close to ten million. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's got to do with that whole leveraged income thing and whatever, and also just being really good with corrupt accountants. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, there's the yeah, but you know what? Hey, actually. 
I'm going to cut this off here because we're getting off we're getting off topic here. Let's let's stay on our company introductory theme here before I mean, we get into our whole like yeah. communist brethren vibe. Well, I mean, we were talking about big people who had started big companies, and this yeah. company has a very big vision that we yeah. want to bring to the world. Yeah, um, and the question and, was, how are we going yeah. to safeguard ourselves? Particularly I, you, Mister Guy, who started the company. How are we gonna How are we gonna safeguard you from becoming the next fucking Bezos? Uh. Well, I mean, I I can't really speak to Bezos's personality because I haven't read or watched very much material on him, so it, it's mostly all secondhand. And he like, paid a, a city in Holland to disassemble an 800-year-old bridge so he could get his 400-foot yacht through it under the river. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't like that. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. That's no, he's literally a guy who's like, I'm right just there. going to throw as much money as I can at any problem that mm, comes in front of me. The film industry standard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like he's the real life Dr. No from James Bond. You know, the bald guy with the scar. Yeah. Like if you ever had anyone closer to Dr. No, it would be Jeff Bezos. Like, Christ. He even has a space thing and he was the guy who did the Moonraker movie too, right? Dr. No is like, yeah, yeah, just wild. So what, what do you hilarious. what do you think is your safeguard? Do you have any um, ideas in place? I'll definitely be able to tell you, and I think it's getting out of hand. But chances are, if you're corrupted, I'll probably be there too. Well, I mean, and that's that's part of it is like the people that I have tried to surround myself with to be a part of this are people that I trust implicitly, and that's like trust is a very big part of both my foundational values and the foundational values of Omnia theater. And also to a degree, I think like trust is the only way that we end up with a good future from where humanity currently mm -hmm. is um, because everyone needs a little more trust in their lives. If you are always scared of what other people are going to do to you, or if you are always thinking about how other people are going to do you wrong or how they might use you or abuse you kind of thing, you're just going to find more people that are going to do that to you. Mm -hmm. If you are looking for those things, you are going to find them. Yeah. And uh, the world has become a very untrusting place. Like people don't know their neighbors in the same way that they did when I was a kid. Mm, and that's for when sure. I was a kid, people didn't even know their neighbors as well as they did like in the generation before me. So- the people you surround yourself with, you trust enough to uh, tell you when they think you're getting out of hand is kind of yes, what you're saying. Yes, I, yeah. I trust them to be honest with me and I offer them the same. I like on the topic of people being assholes, there's definitely periods in my life where people would call me an asshole and I'm not going to run away from that or deny it. Like yeah. sometimes I can be an asshole. Sometimes everyone can be an asshole. Everyone is an asshole. Um, we can be an asshole. But, and yeah. it's, it very much has to do with your relationship with your ego. Like how much does your ego control you versus how much do you control your ego? Ego death. And yeah, I mean, I have been lucky enough to experience ego death on multiple occasions and it is absolutely life-changing. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of one of the benefits of your uh, your psychonautics, right? You're saying you've been experimenting with the subconscious for quite some time. Absolutely, yeah. um, they've very much formed who I am today as a person. Um, like the first time I tried LSD, I think was ten years ago now. Uh, actually, slightly more than ten, eleven years ago now, and I wouldn't be the person that I am today in terms of like 
mental and physical health if it wasn't for that experience that got it started and for like subsequent experiences uh, like i mean talking about creativity like everyone knows that they help make you more creative but like as so are we looking at like bunch, a, like they very much help you be more creative <laughs> so are we looking at company ayahuasca retreats soon here what's going on <laughs> i i would love to do a company ayahuasca retreat that sounds absolutely fantastic peru we're coming um let's go but yeah like they help me become in tune with my body. They help me eat healthier. They help me exercise more. They help me care about myself. There's a lot to be said about being able to just instantly alter your state of consciousness for a while and just get outside of the current yeah. box that you've been thinking in, right? And like kind of inevitably the journey that a lot of people, especially like highly uh, prolific psychonauts, let's say. like Terrence McKenna? A lot of them get to a point where they seek out how to get these states of mind through meditation and breathing techniques instead of psychedelics. And also, I mean, there gets to a point if you do enough of the self-reflection and integration that you don't really need to do them anymore to get a similar effect or to feel in that state of mind. I just had a brilliant pop into my head there uh, for a little light bulb. Uh, another guest that we should bring on here, speaking of psychedelics, I know a man who's very Besides Paul Stamets, Stamets, Stamets. Yeah. He's like my local Paul Stamets. Okay. Well, he's, he's actually a, a friend's father. He's, he's a good friend of mine. Honestly, I guess I'm at the age now where I can call him my friend instead of my friend's dad. Mm. He's been around since I was eight years old. His kid is still one of my best friends. Shouts out to Topher. Hey buddy. <laughs> and to you, Omotis, formerly known as Graydon, but, uh, yeah, he's, um, well-versed in the world of ayahuasca. He's done a multiple, um, I guess you call them walkabouts. Okay. Yeah. Finished, retired from teaching, sold everything, backpack all of South America, hit up ayahuasca retreats, and enters a meditative state for eight plus hours every day and can <laughs> channel wow. into that aspect of his consciousness on demand. Yeah, I mean that's that's the end goal. That's you would dream. think he <laughs> is absolutely nuts if you didn't know him, but he is more sane than most of us. And I think that's that's commonly how society has directed us to feel. Yeah, like a lot of people, especially hard psychonauts, get a label of being kind of crazy. Or like... I think we should make that our our first collaborative topic. Actually, like after this in this introductory video here why don't we do a, a chapter where we both talk to people who have have experience of all kinds with psychedelics i mean i definitely want to talk to you about your experiences right yeah, yeah and having you talk to many others about theirs at least you can relate to them more than i i'm kind of sad diego has just come and gone because he would have been a great one to have on that he's a musician uh, like a music producer and he in the summer, he travels through BC and picks fruit before That's he cool. goes back to yeah. Mexico and produces music in the winter. That would be such a nice life. It sounds like a wonderful life. Uh, and he's like, he's done. I mean, he has spent many summers uh, microdosing psilocybin mushrooms to, I mean, sometimes to help him make music, sometimes to help him get through like tree planting and cherry picking. And I mean, it, every time I've talked to him, we've had just absolutely amazing conversations about them. Yeah, I can imagine. They can carry um, them little baby plants. I never actually finished uh, talking about the, the safeguarding topic. Yeah, uh, like, okay. I think one of the main things besides, like, people that I trust who would 
tell me when things are starting to change is like a real focus on creator first. Because like, I'm not trying to build a company where we are acquiring a portfolio of artists' material and then we're selling them and giving them like a 10% cut. No, no that's no. that's not at all what I want to do. We're going to be the public park that they can all meet and play in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I want to help them make their own material and they can sell it and then we get a small portion of that for helping them produce it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a very different model than how the entertainment industry has traditionally been run because... Typically, it's like you're making an album, you have to sign with a record label and sure, they'll give you an advance and then they'll give you like 10 to 25% royalties or whatever, <laughs> but they are making so much money off of you. YMCA, baby, or was it MCA Records? That's it. There is a mm -hmm. Tom Petty used to tour with these t-shirts that used to say, why MCA? Because MCA Records has predatory practices, I guess. <laughs> MCA Records, I don't care if you're listening. Fuck you. <laughs> Let Streetlight Manifesto go. They've earned more money than you give them. But yeah, yeah, it's there really is a lot of that, especially in the musical world. Like it's it's actors have a union, right? There's Screen Actors Guild and there's I mean, even UBCP. then, like musicians, they don't have that. Like cuz like a musician, like you don't become an actor by just like finding a studio and acting out your own movies and stuff like you would as a musician where you can go record yeah. your own labels. You have to be found by a production company. And then like once you've worked- That's actually such a good point. You do so much more work as a musician. You take on way more risk. Oh. I mean, they're both very difficult to break into. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Yeah, absolutely. But musicians, but they- it's, Yeah, they are basically already doing everything. And then the studio just cherry picks the goal at the end. Yeah. <laughs> that's- that's literally it. Like it, it's a tough world. I have. That's why I have such mad respect for like musicians. Like they, they just know that what they're doing is true to them, and mm -hmm. that's all they need. Actually, something on the the topic earlier about like the magic of sound and uh, musicians as on a whole. I like another thing kind of related to the the psychonautica uh, is that. Uh, at one point in my experiences, I just like came upon this, I don't know, like an urge or maybe a message, an understanding, an internal believing, whatever you want to call it, um, that music was the original form of communication. And that's why it sounds so beautiful to us because it's the way that we are supposed to communicate yeah. with each other. Yeah. And when we reduced ourselves to like regular spoken interaction we kind of removed ourselves from the divine in a sense yeah i mean there yeah it seems like we focused we started to focus more on the structure and less on the content if that makes it or less on the vibration or the resonance of the sound you were making like i feel like we focused more on definition and less on meaning yeah like, well, that's the thing. Like, you could say, I could tell you the word somber, right? And you know what somber means, right? Mm -hmm. But I could also make a sound with an instrument that vibrates at a certain key that will make you feel somber, right? And I won't mm -hmm. have to say a single word. It's just a sound that I've projected, right? That's the kind of detachment that we have now. There's lots of stories and like 
ancient Shaolin monks where they used to gather in hundreds in ohm at a certain frequency together with their voices. And with these beatings of drums at a certain frequency, they could levitate boulders and all this other stuff. Well, right? yeah, there was like, there's a some amount of theory around that being how the Egyptians built the pyramids yeah. too. Yeah, with harmonic resonance. Yeah, letting them yeah. levitate the fucking blocks, yeah. which is wild to think about. And nobody in modern society wants to say like, okay, yeah, that's plausible. But like, what if it is? <laughs> I mean, like we've already found that there's, there is a frequency to gravity, right? Like everything has a frequency. Everything has a frequency. Yeah. Just to attain the anti-sound for gravity requires a immense amount of power that needs to be rapidly cooled, like mm -hmm. at very, 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 very cold temperatures. Like you see these kinds of like little experiments going on all over the world. It's kind of interesting. Um, That's the funniest thing about a lot of like for so many years now, science has refuted and discarded a lot of ancient beliefs and practices saying like, oh, that's like a wives tale or, oh, it's that's just like make believe kind of thing. Yeah, we were it's talking about this focus. yesterday. Yeah. This, yeah. Um, but the deeper we get into more foundational science, I guess, like the more we learn, the more these ancient techniques and practices and understandings are actually starting to line up with science in a way that like no scientist 10 years ago would have even remotely wanted to admit. But now some of them are starting to come around and be like, okay, there's actually a lot more to this than... There's a reason natural yeah. paths are getting so popular, right? Yeah. It's not because of nothing. And like uh, a big example of this is uh, James Nestor's book, Breath, the Breath, a New Science of a Lost Art or something like that. Uh, absolutely life-changing read. 100% recommend everyone that listens to this or watches this to go check it out because it will change the way that you think about breathing. Um, for hundreds of years, we have been breathing wrong and no doctor or scientist for the last like 150 years has wanted to admit that. He goes over this in his book that like every time someone comes along that starts to get some notori notoriety and some popularity around how their techniques can absolutely revolutionize the way that people breathe or help them like build new um, like uh, skeletal structure in their face to help them breathe better. Uh, it gets popular for somewhere between five and 10 years and then it falls off the face of the earth and nobody ever hears of it again until eventually like 20 years later, someone else kind of digs it up and starts down the same path. One of the most recent ones besides James Nestor, who has kind of gone down this path and made it more mainstream is Wim Hof. Yeah. And, oh, dude. And they've done scientific studies on this guy. They, oh, yeah. They've seen the actual physical changes that he can create. In and his... all of this is based on breathing techniques that people called him crazy for practicing that they said, like, wouldn't do anything that don't make a difference. And yeah, you're just running through the snow because you're fucking nuts. That's yeah, all yeah. And like, no, these breathing techniques that were developed and mastered like 2000 years ago or more they are actually hacking your body to perform in ways that you can't even fathom is possible. Yeah. You think like people are under the impression that most of the time, like our brains tell our bodies what to do based on like what it takes in from your other senses first. But the opposite is also true that you can have your body acting in a certain way that causes your brain to think something else is happening. Like, so the Wim Hof breathing, for example, 
the type of breathing he does is like it's practically hyperventilating, right? Yeah. And so your brain is like, oh, I've got to start pushing more blood, right? And then next thing you know, your your core temperature is isolated because it, it's another a, name for it is tumo fire belly breathing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Brazil, isn't it? No, I'm probably wrong on that. No, I think it's uh, I think that's actually like one of the Indian like yoga practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it like nowadays you would call the kind of breathing shock, like when someone is in shock. They're breathing very rapidly and like Mm -hmm. deeply, not as deep, like, you know, sometimes you're not even really breathing when you're in shock, but that same sensation, your brain causes this trigger to send all the blood into your core to protect your organs, but it also keeps your core temperature regulated, right? So Mm -hmm. that's why you can get into these ice cold pools and stuff after doing these breathing exercises, because your core, your body will maintain its own temp as long as you can focus on your breathing. Mm Mm-hmm. Wild. I, I do it with my ice bath practice all the time. Like, oh, yeah. if you were ice bathing or cold showering or polar bear swimming, whatever you want to call it, yeah. like absolutely mastering your breathing is one hundred percent necessary. Went to visit my mom for uh, Thanksgiving last weekend, and she was like, "I heard you've been doing the ice baths, so I left the pool full for you. Enjoy." <laughs> I go out fifty degrees Fahrenheit, came down to about nine degrees Celsius. It's like right close to freezing. It was icy and uh yeah i just jumped in head first came up a little bit of water shock the first was like (gasps) (gasps) right but then i just like (laughs) i had to like just close my eyes and tread the water and just do the purse your lips and (sighs) Mm. just control that one of the main things that jim nestor says in his book is that you should never inhale through your mouth yeah it's, it's a whole different cycle too though right like when you're breathing through your lips when you're pursed like that it's not so much about getting a proper inhale as it is about being able to more easily control your breathing at like a regular, like oh, cause you're nozzling your lips. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So like, I've been experimenting with doing that with my nostrils. I've noticed that if like different, like amounts I'm of forceful right inhale will change the rate. Like if I push my belly out and use my diaphragm to inhale really quickly, you would think that that would like be the fastest way to inhale a ton of air. Okay. Rapid fire, not rapid fire. Just one question, <laughs> quick answer. Uh, Sniper style. Then we can wrap this up because I, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but we've tried this three times now. We've had technical difficulties every time. So we have three other half-recorded podcasts that we've done. You're going to see in this video, we're going to be in different clothes because we're going to need to stitch some of that together. But we want to give you a well, proper I mean, introduction to the company. Those other two videos we can release as separate, maybe not necessarily the first, or it can be like additional content available. Perhaps, on but I think it's going to be really fucking cool if they get to pick out our continuity and we can be like, hey, you were there at the start with us. That's I what mean, we do. Even with this recording, they get to pick out the continuity because our we uh, did a little studio session with a musician between our takes. So yeah, it was great. Everything is slightly in a different place. Yeah. So going forward, um, just so you're all aware back at home, uh, probably about once a week, we're going to be releasing an episode together as the Omnia Theater just to review each other's podcasts and go over what we've done throughout the week and try to be more involved with our community and just kind of give you guys an update as to what we're, what's going on. Um, but we're going to try, and we're only at the start of this, so don't hold me to this too tight, but we're going to try to get at least one episode out to you per week for each of our channels. And, uh, Hopefully by the time this video is up, both of ours will be up and uh, mm-hmm. you can check it out. And we really hope you like it. We plan to yeah. be bringing a lot more fun and entertainment your way 
Um, Ryan's going to be delving into the world of creativity and having conversations with creative individuals and along the lines of how creativity affects their lives, correct? Is that sort of yeah. what we're going with there? Uh, like how creativity makes their life better. Yeah. Does it make it worse in some way? I, I mean, that's an opinion that I I don't think creativity makes anyone's life worse, but I would love to hear if anyone has that opinion. Yeah. Especially anyone watching this. You could leave that in the comments. <laughs> yeah. So we, we plan to be accessing information on that topic for pe- for people from all walks of life, varieties, creeds, colors, whatever you want to call it. Like just everyone. We, we're interested yeah. in you. We're interested in the people that you're interested in. If you have suggestions, feel free to send it to us. Um, and for me, I'm going to be doing something a little different. I'm just going to be doing what I've always wanted to do. And that's talk to people that I'm interested in just about all kinds of things. I, as you probably found out over these last few sessions that he and I have done, mm. <laughs> I like a lot of shit. I like a lot of people. Oh, me too. I like to ask all the questions and like, I sometimes it won't even be a podcast. Sometimes it might be some random experimental project that I want to do, but it, it, I'll, I'll try to bring you guys something every week. It's going to be called the deficit. And, um, it's not a finance podcast. It no. is to fulfill your deficit of attention and stimulation. Yeah. Because I know you guys are like me. And Which I guess kind of makes the theme of your podcast ADHD plus creativity. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan's going to be talking to like really interesting people and getting into the topics of very interesting things. I mean, I, I find them interesting, so I hope you guys find them yeah. interesting too. They, they will be interesting. Trust me. This guy's into interesting We're calling things. this one creative conversations. Yep. That's going to be his. It's going to be pretty cool. I hope you guys enjoy that as well. We hope you guys enjoy that as well. Um, very much so. You know, at the end of each episode, we're going to treat you with a song from a local artist. Yeah, and keep in mind, we also have a friend of ours who's going to be coming on soon. Uh, his name is Carl. He'll be doing his own podcast as well. Um, yeah, he doesn't have a title for his yet, but the theme is going to be the difference between indie and union in the film industry. Yeah, indie versus union. It it will be very interesting indie to listen, land versus to, listen union to. Nation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially if you yourself are interested in the film world. I cannot recommend enough to watch Carl's podcast. He is very well versed and well educated in the world of film and cinema on yeah, both sides of that. He's done first AD gigs for a lot of indie gigs. He's worked for a lot of commercials doing first and second AD gigs. And he's done some union work as a, I think he's done union as a third AD. I think he's so. also worked in health and safety with me on one of our shows, A Million Little Things. We were the testing team, which is, Probably one of the less creative departments since we organized the crew to have their nose swabbed every week. Yeah. Uh, but I actually got to have a lot of fun building some back-end database technology for that that made our show the most efficient team in the Lower Mainland. Very so, cool. That's good to know. Leveraged my creativity hey, there. <laughs> more on that on the next one too, guys. So stay tuned. Um, anything you want to say, Ryan? No, I think that about wraps it up for our first episode. Cool. Okay. My name's Adam Aubrey. I'm Ryan Threlfall. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Omnia Theater. We'll see you later. Like and follow us everywhere. And subscribe.
California's calling Somewhere warm and dry My baby's in a Volkswagen And she just needs to drive She just needs to get away Now get away from me Get away from everything Be her own company California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down California's calling She's headed down the coast Oh, we're gonna Washington I'll drive by states and most She just needs to feel the sun Do her own damn thing Get away from all of it And let her soldiers sing California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down Will you tell her that I love her Even though we text and talk all the time She sends me photographs of dinosaurs Palm trees and the red van by the beaches Where the sun set on the water is sublime California's calling Somewhere warm and dry My baby's in a Volkswagen And she just needs to drive California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down California's calling California's calling California's calling Calling my baby down California's calling Calling my baby down